The following is presented by the Center for Political Innovation, CPI, Building American Socialism for the 21st Century. To learn more, visit cpiusa.org. Hey, what's up, everyone? Uh, this is Ramiro. I'm having a conversation with my good friend, longtime friend, a journalist uh, and political commentator, Caleb Maupin, based in New York. Caleb has done a lot of great work on introducing socialist and progressive ideas to young people across the United States and the world. And today I wanted to talk with Caleb about a topic that is on a lot of people's minds. We're talking about self-improvement and especially we're talking about methods of social of self-improvement. Now, there's someone on the internet, and you've probably seen his name around. His name is Jordan B. Peterson. And Jordan Peterson, in my opinion, basically, he's just like a right-wing kind of... It's weird because he doesn't fit like the right-wing mold 100%, but he's this right-wing character online from Canada, you know, with a, a soft-spoken voice who uh, talks about self-improvement a lot. And... I've noticed a lot of young people that I've spoken to who are in their teens getting ready for college or even young college students, they listen to Jordan Peterson a lot. They want to improve themselves, but unfortunately, they're getting it from someone who has no idea what he's talking about. He confuses the crap out of me personally. Uh, and also um, someone who doesn't have the best interests of working class people at heart. And so I wanted to talk to Caleb about alternatives to Jordan Peterson, right? Because whenever we're talking, critiquing someone, you know, we, we don't just want to bash someone. We also want to create an alternative. We also want to present uh, other viable opportunities for people to improve themselves. So, uh, Caleb, you know, thanks for talking with me today. I hope I hope all is well on your end. It becomes very apparent to me that that Jordan Peterson is just quite ignorant of what Marxism is. There's one clip where he tries to explain Marx's economic theories, and he has just no clue about basic concepts like overproduction, uh, what it means to be working class, and that it seems like most of the time that he talks about Marxism, basically what he's trying to say is that, uh, that, that modern uh, campus postmodernists and liberals are Marxists. And that means they're bad because Stalin was also a Marxist and Stalin killed a million gajillion people. Um, and that seems to be his argument. So he's not even really arguing with Marxism. He just sees Marxism as kind of a red herring he can throw at liberals. Um, and his knowledge of Marxism is quite limited. He's studied the works of Solzhenitsyn. Um, and he's, he, that, that seems to be all he knows about Marxism. Um, he, when it comes to psychology, he's actually pretty decent. A lot of what he says about psychology, I wouldn't dispute. And I think it's, you know, some of his self-help advice is is pretty decent. It's just disappointing that it comes with such a big dose of of right-wing politics and confusion. Um, and I feel like increasingly he speaks to a certain demographic in U.S. society, which is young men who feel like uh, they're they're very worried about their future. And if you look at it, you know, the standard of living in the Western countries has been declining. Uh, the industrial working class has been kind of eliminated. And it used to be, you know, somebody with a high school diploma could go get a job in a factory, you know, work, work, take care of a family, raise their kids. You know, that's not the reality anymore. We have a low wage economy and there's a lot of young men who who 
are just not able to go out and become like the patriarchal father figure of a household and they feel stuck and their family is putting a lot of pressure on them and saying that they're a loser, they're a screw up, they're a failure. Why can't you get your life together? Why can't you move ahead? And their self-esteem is really shot. And that this contributes a lot to the rise of the alt-right. And this contributes a lot to the, the school shooting crisis. And this contributes a lot to a lot of the problems that we're having in U.S. society. And Jordan Peterson, the way he speaks, you'll, you'll notice that that gentle voice that he uses is a big part of what he does. It, <laughs> seriously, if he were to have an angry voice or a firm, gruff voice, he wouldn't get away with saying a lot of things he says. But he says, you know... Ah, you know, the I, I got kind of a problem here with this, and uh, you know, and and it it it's gentle and it's not scary, and right. he's got kind of giving the fatherly affection that I think a lot of these young men are missing. A lot of them feel like their dad thinks that they're a screw up and a failure because their dad, when he was twenty five, he already had a house and a car and was working, you know, and making you know lots of money at the assembly line at Ford, and they're already in college and they got student debt and they still haven't gotten their life together, and they they feel like they're comparing themselves to their father and they're a screw up and. And Peterson gives the gives voice to how they feel, and he he makes them feel like they're not alone, like someone cares about them, someone sympathizes with them, and he gives them advice about how to succeed that doesn't come across as as gruff. It's very gently put, and and he he fulfills them in a lot of ways. Unfortunately, it just comes with a lot of of really right wing politics, and I think that a lot of these young men, in particular, because they feel like they've screwed up, they feel like the world doesn't understand them, they feel like the world's unfair to them. They are very hostile to any kind of feminism, to any kind of uh, of, of talk of uh, white skin privilege or or racial theories, because they feel like their life is not fair, and they feel like whenever you acknowledge the oppression of women or if you acknowledge racial injustice, that somehow you're taking away from the fact that they're suffering. Um, and I think that's why they're particularly open to a right wing message. But if you were a left wing, if Jordan Peterson were left wing and speaking to them this way, this way, they wouldn't be open to it. And I think that that's part of the issue as well. Does that make sense? Oh yeah, definitely, and and uh, it's interesting because he is opposed to a, a sort of materialist understanding of reality, where uh, he, you know, you have a lot of young men like you were saying comparing themselves to their fathers, and the reality is that, like you said, the material conditions of life in the world under capitalism are very different from you know the post World War II boomer era, and we have a generation that's saddled with complete debt that is unable to buy any property or houses. And a lot of times young men, like you said, just take it out on themselves and look to people like Jordan Peterson. And I think that uh, there's also another figure online. Have you ever heard of someone named Stefan Molyneux? I, do, I have not. He, uh, I've watched a few of his videos and he's kind of similar to Jordan Peterson. He has a sort, sort of fatherly uh, figure aspect to him, and he tries to direct himself toward young men, to, toward improving themselves and working out and reading philosophy, which I think is great. But the only issue is that he's an objectivist. <laughs> and he is a big supporter of Ayn Rand and uh, libertarian uh, right-wing uh, crazy ideology that is uh, anti-human is anti-worker, and so what? What is the common thread among a lot of these uh, right-wing commentators like Jordan Peterson? You think uh, about uh, poor people? Why should poor, poor working-class people avoid people like Jordan Peterson and Stefan Molyneux? Well, overall, they individualize everything. Self-help has been around for a long time. Uh, you can go back to 
the 1930s, there was a very popular book that was published in 1937 called How to Win Friends and Influence People. It's considered to be one of the first big self-help books. Um, and and self-help has been around for a long time. But what I've noticed is particularly interesting about these individuals, um, the, the new round of self-help that, that seems to be politically charged and right wing, is that it seems to be, uh, a, rather than uplifting and positive, here are things you can do to get your life together, it seems to be very focused on the negative. Here's a collection of people that have screwed up in some way. They're to blame for their own problems, right? Uh, I know Jordan Peterson, you'll hear him talk about people and describe them as youth useless or worthless, right? And here's a list of people who've screwed up in some way. They've made some mistake. Don't be like them. They're useless. They're worthless. They're disgusting. They're and, and kind of blaming people. If you individualize everything, if everything's about individual choices, then you can't think in terms of bigger societies. You can't think of context. Everything's about how good an individual is. And then you start listing a group of people who've made a negative choice or made something, blaming them for their problems. It's particularly dangerous. And, and one thing that I, I've noticed is that, you know, they, they have done studies where they talked about people that are more conservative tend to be more easily grossed out or disgusted, right? And that, uh, that, that he's playing on that. You know, people that are poor will get away from them. They're disgusting. People that have a disease, perhaps get away from them. They're disgusting. You know, and it, we're going to clean the world by staying away from the problematic people. You know, it's almost like kind of an OCD mentality. <laughs> and it's weird because it, it, it's kind of the, the mirror opposite of a big problem I see in left wing circles, which in left wing circles, there's almost an attraction to anything that is perceived <laughs> as gross or anything that's perceived as weak or anything that's perceived as 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 a victim or oppressed. And that's problematic as well. And I think that that that, you know, on the left, if anything is perceived as strong or powerful there, it immediately is labeled to be oppressive and that, that there there is this 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 fear of anything, anything successful, anything strong, anything powerful. And I think that's why a lot of people might be attracted to the right who might be attracted to the left. But the left puts off this vibe that if you actually get your stuff together, well, then you're the enemy. I yeah. always joke that the, the, if you want to be eulogized as a leftist. Right. If you want to be a, a leftist revolutionary hero who's praised at left forum and has books written about you and has Marxist professors writing their their doctoral dissertations on you, what you have to do is lose the revolution. Just lose. <laughs> and you'll, you know what I'm saying? Like Rosa Luxemburg, she lost. So everyone loves her. Right. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, there's all kinds of anarchists in Spain. They lost. So all these leftists love them. But Stalin, he won. Right. They don't like Stalin because he won. He so he's an oppressor. He's, he's part of the system. He's, he, it, it, it's this weird mindset where there's this attraction to those who fail um, and that leftism just kind of becomes the permanent opposition. It becomes kind of the bohemian critique of Western society. Um, and it tends to be very middle class. And it's those who, who are kind of feeling alienated from the system. They're attracted to anything that is perceived of as, as, as weak or somehow not fitting in with society. And that's that mindset cannot create any kind of revolution. And, and so I, I can understand that. And if you look at what, the, what you know, the, the revolutionary movements of the past have done, in a lot of ways, they've done a lot, you know, they, they've, they've done a lot to help people improve themselves. For example, I know Mao's first published article was about the importance of physical education in, uh, in school and why it's important to have exercise and sports in school. And that Mao at that point was a, was a high school principal right? That was his job. And he was, he was talking about why it's important to stay in shape and why, you know, education is not simply a matter of reading books, but it's also a matter of, of, of staying physically fit and then unifying everybody by doing exercises and all of that. And I think that's particularly interesting. Um, and that, 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 uh, the, the mindset that we associate with leftism 
in the West is not the mindset you see associated with leftism in the developing world. One thing that I thought was really neat was when I was in Ecuador uh, for the World Festival of Youth and Students, you know, we it, the World Festival of Youth and Students 2013 was held in um, in like an, uh, a, what used to be an airport. It was like this big part, park in central Quito. And in the morning, I'd see all these kids doing like punches and like karate, you know, they'd be like, you know, you know, and, well, it turns out there's a special martial art that Rafael Correa, the Bolivarian leader of Ecuador, had invented. And all the young people got like a free uniform and they would wake up in the morning and do these like karate moves that the socialist president Correa had taught them. I thought that was very cool. And that was a big part of, of his, his you know, socialist movement was this, this new martial art that they've invented in, in Ecuador. I think that's pretty neat, you know? Um, so I think there's a lot that can be learned. I know in China now, there's a big thing with that they call square dancing, but it's not like hillbilly square dancing. It's they dance in public squares. It's a big movement the Chinese Communist Party is promoting where people get together and exercise in public squares, like in uniform, uni- unison together right now. It's, it's a big movement taking place across China. People associate with President Xi and his revival of, of the Chinese Communist Party and it's more Marxist uh, angles and and kind of uh, so. So I think that, that there's things we can learn from all of this. Um, there's aspects of Peterson that I would certainly reject, but there's aspects of him that I think you can learn from. Um, it, it's it's just a matter of looking into things. But whenever the man talks about communism, he doesn't know what he's talking about. I mean, and, and there's all these statements that get made that are just so wildly inaccurate, but no one will challenge. There's one clip where Jordan Peterson says that the czar's government in Russia was bad, but it was a paradise compared to what the Bolsheviks created. <laughs> Now, think about that statement, though, right? There was no running water in most of the country under the czar. There was no electricity. There was 60% illiteracy. So how in the world can anyone say that, 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 that czarist Russia was a paradise compared to what the Bolsheviks created? I mean, the Bolsheviks built universities. They, they fed people. I mean, you can be critical of what went on, and you can say that there were things in that society that were not right. But to say that, that czarist Russia was a paradise compared to the Soviet Union, that statement shouldn't pass. Right. No one should be able to say that with, with, with a straight face. You know, that, that's just ridiculous. But he says this stuff because he's pandering to anti-communism. Right. Yeah. And, and uh, totally agree. And, and he's pandering to the whole misunderstood um, concept of Marxism. Uh, I, when I first started getting into Marxism, unfortunately, because it, there were so many kind of hippy-dippy, anarchisty types, I confused being a communist with you know, uh, dressing all like bummy, not showering and, 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 you know, just like doing endless drugs and, and, and just being like nonconformist. And it's actually the opposite of that. Like you said, across most of the world, people want to clean themselves up. And, and I was telling you through text, uh, or through a phone call, like a few weeks ago that I've been reading, uh, this book by Kim Il-sung, uh, part of his collected works. And he talks about everything from, uh, you know, economics and, and agriculture to self-development and self-care. And so I just wanted to put that out there for people listening to this as well. Is like, look to uh, figures like Kim Il-sung or Mao or Che or even, uh, you know, across the world. There's so many communist writers who talk about, you know, being healthy, eating well, exercising, taking care of your body. And those are things that especially within communist circles now, that if you're uh, um, uh, a man, a, a lot of times you get demonized for that, that, that people think that you, as, as a male communist, you should just go, 
you know, decompose somewhere <laughs> in the corner, but we have to take care of ourselves and women as well, too. Like this includes women as well, men and women. And um, I just found that interesting. And and totally, I've noticed that in with leftist groups around the world, progressive forces, you know, people put on their Sunday's best when they go to a communist meeting, right? They put on their best clothing and they get rest and and because they see themselves as professional revolutionaries. And I think the reason why um, that narrative of Marxists being like slovenly and like, you know, uh, disheveled and, and not well-maintained is because it benefits U.S. imperialism. It benefits uh, capitalist system in the sense that people say, look, do you want those people to be in charge of your country? Do you want those people to, to run the economy? Uh, so it's, I think it's, uh, I'm glad that you pointed that out because it's so important that as progressives and, and leftists that we, uh, make sure to, to combat that narrative. Yeah. Well, in 1949, the Soviet union convened a peace conference in New York city called the Waldorf peace conference. And it was just this amazing conference. And Albert Einstein was there and the composer Aaron Copeland was there and a lot of Hollywood stars were there. And they were all saying that the Soviet Union was right in the Cold War and that the USA was wrong. And it was just a huge, amazing conference. And this was at the height of McCarthyism. And the CIA looked at that conference and they were just furious about it. And, and you can read, if you go to the CIA website, CIA.gov, you can read about what they did in response to the Waldorf Peace Conference of 1949, is they launched the Congress for Cultural Freedom, which the CIA considers to be one of its most successful programs, uh, the CCF. Um, and they hired a New York City Trotskyist named Sidney Hook, a college professor who actually thought he was a Marxist, but he was like a Trotskyite professor in New York City. And they hired him to run this program for the CIA called the Congress for Cultural Freedom. And the CIA brags about this. And what they did is they tried to create distance between Western intellectuals who might become communists and the Soviet Union. And the, the program, they, they did a lot to distort left-wing ideology and left-wing thinking in the United States and Western Europe. Uh, for example, they promoted the, the work of Jackson Pollock, the painter, right? The Soviet Union was promoting socialist realism, art that, that showed the plight of working people and struggles for justice and promoted a socialist message. Well, the CIA began funding the work of Jackson Pollock, who just splattered paint on a, on a canvas, <laughs> right? And the idea was, look, you know, it's free. It's not propaganda, right? It's just free. And that's, you know, um, they also, they funded a Trotskyite magazine called the Partisan Review Magazine. Um, and they made sure this was on every campus. It was everywhere. And it had the writings of George Orwell. It had the writings of Susan Sontag. It had the writings of Noam Chomsky in it. Um, and and it, was, it was left-wing ideas that were critical of the Soviet Union. They were critical of the United States, but they're also critical of socialism, also critical of Marxism. And if you read some of Susan Sontag's essays, where she talks about notes on camp and other things, she basically argues that any, any form of, of uh, ideology is itself oppressive. Uh, in, later in her life, Susan Sontag very famously said that communism is nothing but the most successful form of fascism. That's actually a direct quote from her, right? What does that even mean, right? But if you read her essays on the fascist aesthetic and all of that, she hates socialist realism and she hates Marxism because Marxism says there is actual truth in the world. Everything's not a matter of opinion. Right. That there is actual truth and reality that there is there is good and bad in the world. There is right and wrong. The the postmodern left that emerged with CIA assistance 
was basically arguing that there was no such thing. Everything's a shade of gray. Everything's a matter of opinion. And anyone who comes along and says, look, let's 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 try to work toward a goal. Let's have an ideal. They're a totalitarian. They're oppressive. And that that kind of thinking became synonymous with leftism. Drugs in particular. Right. Drugs are something that the left has always struggled against. Right. I mean, you know, uh, I mean, after the Chinese Revolution, the execution of heroin dealers and heroin importers was very massive. I mean, they they executed a lot of them because the British Empire had used heroin and and opium to control the Chinese people and make them like slaves, basically. Um, And that's, you know, and then when the emperor had tried to ban bringing opium into China, uh, they'd waged the the two opium wars where the British sent the Navy to force the Chinese to allow uh, narcotics from Britain to flow into the country. Right. So they executed all kinds of drug dealers, you know, and then and and, you know, the, the drug addiction was seen as something that was a disease of capitalism. Right. It's that the people are suffering. They turn to drugs as a way to try to ease their pain um, and that it's a hor- horrific thing. And that when people become addicts, their life is destroyed and and every last cent is going to the drug. And it, it's just a, it's just a horrendous thing. Well, the CIA started a program in the 1950s called MK Ultra, and it was a program where they began distributing drugs on college campuses. You can read about this. And they would go to college campuses and they would do little experiments where they would give college kids LSD and they would all blew their mind. And then there was Dr. Timothy Leary, who was a Harvard professor who'd been involved in these LSD experiments, which were very quietly linked to the CIA. And he actually started touring the United States and he he got fired from Harvard and then all over the United States. He was traveling around and going to talk to young people who believed in protesting the Vietnam War and believed in the civil rights movement and telling them that the way to be revolutionary was to do drugs, right? And you can read about Dr. Timothy Leary and it was all about use LSD, use marijuana. And he had this slogan, tune in, turn on and drop out. And a lot of the literature that came out of the 1960s left was actually very anti-Soviet, right? And it said, well, because the Soviet Union, they're a bunch of squares, they're not cool. It's a new revolution where we're, we're hip and we just do our own thing and we listen to rock music. That was all very carefully created by big record companies and by the U.S. intelligence agencies. I mean, Woodstock, for example, the Woodstock concert that everyone talks about, the the musicians were all flown to Woodstock. Uh, They were flown in to the concert on military helicopters, right? So the establishment, it's not like Woodstock was just a random concert that happened in the middle of the woods, right? I mean, military helicopters were involved. Big record companies sat down and planned the whole thing. The 60s counterculture was very much a creation of the Western capitalist system, right? And now it wasn't all a big conspiracy. And we know like the Nixon wing of the establishment was very opposed to it. Um, but it was very, very carefully crafted. Another thing was the Eastern cults, for example. The Dalai Lama, he is loved in leftist circles, right? If you go to liberal and leftist circles, people love the Dalai Lama. He's Eastern, he's mystical, he's, you know, he's, he's he, but if you look at it, the Dalai Lama when he was running Tibet, it was an awful feudal regime in which people had no rights, in which they had public executions and people having their eyes gouged out for speaking critically of the Dalai Lama and mutilations. And it was it was just just an awful thing. And in the 1950s, the, the CIA, you know, and enabled the Dalai Lama's brother to to be airdropped into Tibet. And, and they fomented, you know, a whole big civil war. The Tibetan Civil War, you can read a book published by the Heritage Foundation um, that's called The CIA's Secret War in Tibet. And it describes how Tibetans were trained in Colorado and then airdropped into Tibet to engage in guerrilla warfare against the Chinese government, against the Chinese Communist Party. And it was basically uh, the contra war of Ronald Reagan. It was Nicaragua, except it was in the 1950s and it was in Asia. 
um, that the, the Tibetan movement, the Tibetan separatist movement, has always been a right-wing movement to overthrow communism and to reimpose serfdom and feudalism into Tibet. However, the Dalai Lama was brought to the United States, and he's Eastern, and he's mystical, and now in Hollywood and in leftist circles, people idealize this very, very right-wing movement. And in fact, the book Seven Years in Tibet, which is considered like a holy book among among people who love the Dalai Lama, it's this memoir of this German guy who goes to Tibet, and it's so amazing. Well, it was written, the, the author of it is Heinrich Harrer, and he was a member of Hitler's SS, wow. actually. At the time he wrote it, that's why he was in Tibet. Um, and Julius Evola, the main ideologue of Italian fascism, also loved Tibet. And he loved it because there was no protests and there was no strikes, right? And that the caste system of India, for example, right? That all these Indian gurus, guys from India, you know, who are Hindu nationalists and believe in the caste system, they tend to be celebrated in left-wing circles as well, right? Uh, the Hare Krishna movement. If you go to India, communists hate those people. They're considered right. the most far right-wing guys around. They want to kill all the Muslims. They don't believe in protests and strikes. They believe that, you know, if you're if you're poor, well, then you should just be live a good, humble life. And then maybe you'll be reincarnated into a rich person in their next life. Right. That's that's the idea. I mean, they're, they're very, very right wing. They're opposed to any kind of socialism or or class struggle. They're very, very authoritarian. But yet in the USA and left wing circles, they're welcomed in and they're seen as, wow, they're Eastern and they're mystical. And they're going to help you have inner peace. So a lot of things that are considered to be right wing around the world are now considered to be left-wing in the United States. And I think that that distortion of leftism has a lot to do with, with why people identify with leftism with being sloppy and screwed up and addicted to drugs and, and, and all of that. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah, totally. And uh, it's actually, I see it happening as well in Latin America. Uh, for example, you have the crowd of people who uh, you know support AMLO, the president AMLO, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, uh, who's part of the Morena party. And, you know, they're, they're progressives. They're not communists, but they're, you know, social Democrat progressives who want to improve the country. Uh, you know, they, they don't, they dress like, well, you know, they're, I mean, they're not wearing like $3,000 suits, but they dress like professionally. Yeah. And then you have, uh, you know, people, for example, like in the U S left who, uh, only support the Zapatistas and oppose AMLO completely uh, because of the aesthetic of like, you know, he wears a suit and he's like trying to, you know, he, ha he works with companies that exist in the world. And we see um, in, in a lot of Latin American countries that are working with uh, the private sector, smaller companies to build up the economy, uh, to build 21st century socialism. We see the same tactic being used by CIA backed so-called leftist groups to promote, like, you know, for example, the National Endowment for Democracy uh, was funding uh, hip hop artists in Venezuela to oppose the Chavistas and to promote, like, this hip hop that was uh, counter revolutionary and that promoted, like, criminal lifestyle and, and, and all this stuff. And, and in Mexico, you know, they're using it as well against AMLO. And it's just interesting to see how uh, they experimented with it in the US in the 60s and 70s, and now they're exporting it around the world and in order to to topple uh progressive anti-imperialist governments um that are i don't know if you remember as well um there was uh an issue maybe like a year or two back with xi jinping and like hip-hop music did you hear about that, that i did hear about that um mm -hmm. and I, I there were similar statements about from putin as well 
Right. Uh, and that there, there is this understanding that Western culture in a lot of ways is, is, is something designed to break apart and cause chaos in developing countries. And in the Western countries too. I mean, our, our society is crumbling and falling apart. I mean, there's chaos and mass shootings and, and I mean, the roads aren't being properly paved. I mean, they're unpaving the roads. that the West, you know, this radical individualism has gotten so extreme that even the ruling class has no unity among itself. And some of them want to get along with Russia and some of them want to fight with Russia. Some of them want to get along with China. Some of them want to fight China and they don't even have any unified vision. It's like chickens running around with their heads cut off. You know, I mean, they, they, they just, uh, you know, the, the Western societies are basically just pulling apart. There's no central idea any longer. There's no ultimate mission. And, and, and even the Western capitalist order, you know, on some level, you know, a couple generations ago, there was some kind of unifying vision. There isn't anymore, right? I mean, Western, Western society is just kind of coming apart. And that's reflected in our art and in our music and such, is that we're reflecting this, this society that's descending further into chaos and confusion and not knowing what it's about. At this point, what does it mean to be an American or a citizen of the United States? What does it mean at this point? I don't know. I mean, nobody <laughs> knows, you know? There yeah, used to yeah. be, you know, 20 years ago, people would have told you, well, there's the idea of America and its freedom and all that. Now, most people know that that's more or less nonsense. You know, you know what I'm saying? And so that there's, this, there's this whole confusion. What does it mean? What is it all about? That the West is just kind of in decline and that our, our art and our music reflects that. And then, you know, there's a feeling in the developing world and countries that are trying to rise up out of historic poverty and develop and industrialize that that kind of message, that kind of pessimism that's coming out of the West is not helpful. And that, um, that, that they want to want art and music and such that reflects an optimistic message, right? And that that's what I feel is missing because both on the left and on the right in the United States, you get a, a high level of pessimism. And that young people and, and that Peterson, when he's saying clean your room, he's saying, uh, you, know, uh, you know, get your life together, go get a job, you know, you know walk, walk upright, you know, keep your shoulders back. He's yeah, saying yeah. this and that's optimism, right? It's look ahead to the future. Right. And that people really crave any, any optimism right now in this age because there's so much pessimism and darkness in the world. And that, that uh, you know, that both the left and the right just kind of feed into this. The world is all going to hell. The world is all falling apart. Everything is, is coming to an end. And that's not Marxism, right? Marxism is an ideology founded on the concept of historical progress, right? It's the idea that history is marching forward, that human beings with our creativity and our brilliance are always raising the level of productive forces in order to have a more perfect society. And that ultimately we can reach a vision of a society that is so abundant and so comfortable that we don't need a state even, right? That people can take what they need and do what they feel like doing from each according to their own ability, from each according to their need, which is a phrase that Karl Marx used to describe the ultimate goal of communism, something that wouldn't come for like thousands of years. But it's interesting because Marx actually took that phrase from each according to their need from the Bible. I bet you didn't know that from the book of Acts, where the disciples live and, and all is distributed according to their need. So Marx was actually, when he, when he described communism that way, he was using language from the book of Acts from the Christian Bible to try and explain it to people who lived in Germany that was highly Christian. So I think that's particularly interesting. And that, um, yeah, and yeah. That, that, that Marxism is a continuation of a long-standing trend in human history, right? You can go back to Julius Caesar, who fought for the rights of the proletarians in ancient Rome. Uh, you can talk about the Epic of Gilgamesh and how uh, in ancient Mesopotamia, they believed in this, this myth of this, this character called Gilgamesh, who was a human being who killed a, a mighty bull, a bull that was huge, but it was because he was a human being. He had possessed intelligence that he was able to slay this mighty 
creature, this bull of heaven. And that being that because human beings are, are better than animals. And actually the tradition of bullfighting in, in Latin America and in Spain is actually rooted in the epic of Gilgamesh, particularly interestingly. And that, that if you look through all human history, there's always been what you could call the city builders. And those who seek to advance human progress, build a better life, advance science, advance art, advance creativity, and, and get beyond the hardships and horrors of the world and get to a, a more humane society where people are taken care of and where there's a higher level of solidarity among the people. Um, and that Marxism is simply the, the current incarnation of that trend in human history, right? It's people coming out of the French Revolution, coming out of the English Revolution, and, the, and really the, the German Revolution of 1848, which Marx participated in, seeing that capitalism had not created a, a new order of freedom and justice, that there was still a problem, that, 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 that all of the, uh, the kings and queens and nobles of old Europe had been replaced with the factory owners and the bankers, and that, that, uh, that, that, that human serfdom and slavery had been replaced with wage slavery, and that ultimately the only way this could be res resolved and the only way human progress could continue to advance is if the major centers of economic power, the factories, the banks, were under public control and operated rationally so that we as a species could continue marching toward better things and, and ultimately toward the vision of a world that was so comfortable we don't even need a government. That's the vision of Marxism. But unfortunately, when you go to the university and you learn Marxism, you learn something completely different, right? I mean, I, I've had people often, the, the, the great cliche is people say, how do you wear those really nice shoes and be a Marxist, right? <laughs> Right. Or, 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 or people say, well, China can't be a socialist country because there's billionaires there. Right. Well, I, the vision of Marxism is that everyone should be able to live the life of a billionaire. Right. Mm -hmm. We're all billionaires compared to people who lived 200 years ago. Right. You know, the, the idea that, that, that Marxism is about wanting people to have less, wanting people to be poorer, wanting people to be less prosperous. That's 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 a distortion. Marxism is about raising the standard of living. But it points out that the way that those who get wealthy under capitalism get wealthy is largely by making other people poor, right? That's mm -hmm. how the capitalists acquire their wealth is by keeping people poor, driving countries around the world into poverty, you know, lowering the wages of the working class, you know, hooking people on opioids, locking people in a prison industrial complex, destroying countries with a military industrial complex, that the capitalists, their wealth comes from impoverishing others. And we want to create a society where wealth Wealth leads to more other people becoming wealthy, where, you know, as they say, that a, that a rising tide lifts all boats, right? That, that, that socialism is about, you know, just increasing living standards by having rational human reason control the economy, not the anarchy of production and the chaos of the market. The capitalist only does it if he can make a profit off of it. He doesn't care about the results. And, and as a result, we have a society that's completely crazy and distorted. In times past, people were hungry because there wasn't enough food. Now, under capitalism, people go hungry because there's too much food, right? In times past, people you know, were homeless because there was a shortage of housing. Well, now, under capitalism, people are homeless because there is too much housing. This is an irrational system, and it requires you know, the, the means of production, the centers of economic power to be controlled by society and rationally operated, and a line of march. Uh, that's what Marx talks about, a line of march to be laid out to, to raise living standards and have the economy be planned. Um, and, and China is a success story. China used to be one of the poorest countries in the world. Now it's the second largest economy in the world. Russia, with socialism, became the first country in outer space. You know, Socialism is, is all about taking responsibility and pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, but doing it in a way that doesn't come at the expense of anyone else. Right. 
Oh yeah, definitely. And and I think uh, you hit a central point is that socialists in the 21st century have to frame their argument in the sense of construction. Socialism is about building and constructing, not just tearing down what exists. And I had this issue uh, myself. I, I've evolved throughout the years. Like I, you know, when I was around 14, 15, I became interested in atheism and then eventually communism. And I would, you know, speak uh, very negatively or um, patronizing toward people who were religious and, and in a way that was like not constructive. You know what I mean? Like, even though we, we share the same social values of eliminating hunger, poverty, I, I would, you know, like we would hit a wall when it came to religion. And so for me now, like that doesn't matter. I think what, if people want to have uh, follow a religion, that's totally up to them in their personal life. Um, and I think that we have to keep this moving forward with building and constructing. And I like the fact that in Iran, for example, uh, Ahmadinejad's party is called the Alliance of Builders of, Const of Construction. I think I forget the exact translation, but it's like something like the Alliance of Builders. And uh, I remember a few years back when he was speaking at Columbia University, I was reading uh, some of the articles about him from the Iranian press. And it talked about that same point, right, that we want a model of construction and development that isn't based on uh, usury or exploitation like it is, for example, in Israel, where and he and there is a comparison, right, because like Iran is is a very stable and prosperous country in the Middle East uh, because uh, its economic model of development is built on, built on self-development and construction and not exploitation of other people uh, like it is with Israel. And that's the kind of stuff that in the 21st century we have to keep in mind is like uh, we want to inspire people to build and create because it can take 10 years to build something. Uh, in Ecuador, for example, you know, I, I was living there uh, just like a year and a half ago and the people love Rafael Correa. Everyone loves Rafael Correa because they can see the tangible stuff that they built. It only took a few months for some of that stuff to be deconstructed. And right now, Ecuador is unfortunately spiraling down into right. a neoliberal mess. Uh, and it's so easy to tear down, uh, but it's uh, 10 times harder to build up. And that being said, I wanted to ask you to kind of like wrap up. Um, what would you say, what advice would you have for young, uh, young people, especially young men who are like 18, 19 uh, who are who have heard about people like Jordan Peterson or Stefan Molyneux, um, and they want to improve themselves, but they want to uh, transition over to more uh, Marxist or socialist uh, figures who are pro uh, development and pro self improvement. Uh, what kind of material would you suggest for them to make that leap? One of the best books I ever read was called The Stalin Era by Anna Louise Strong. And this is an American journalist from Seattle who was living in the Soviet Union during the 1930s. And she describes what she witnessed, which was a whole country pulling itself up by its bootstraps, industrializing, building itself up, and, and becoming a, a global superpower. And, and if you want to talk about grit and struggle and working hard and all of that, she, she describes it. And she describes the conversation she had with people all over the country. And there's a reason that today Stalin is wildly popular in, in Russia, right? If you go to Russia, you know, at least half the people say that Stalin was mostly good. 
you know, people will say that Stalin was like Hitler. But if you go to Germany, nobody likes Hitler, right? Even the far right wing people say that they hate Hitler. Nobody likes Hitler. But you go to Russia, Stalin is like the man, right? And you ask them why, they'll say Stalin built up our country. You know, we were just a poor agrarian country. And then Stalin came here and he organized us. And Stalin isn't even Russian. He was Georgian. He's from Georgia. But he's one of the most popular people in all of Russia because of his ability to bring a country together, bring people of different nationalities together, organize them to build up the country and then to defeat the Nazi invaders. And then eventually, right, you know, right after Stalin died, they became the first country in outer space. Um, you know, I mean, I, I would encourage people to read, you know, Anna Louise Strong's book, uh, you know, you know, the Stalin era um, or, or you read some of what President Xi Jinping is putting out where he talks about socialism with Chinese characteristics and how socialism is a big aspect of what has made China, which is a 5000 year old civilization, what has made them really rise up. You know, he talks about the Chinese dream of a country that was impoverished, restoring its place in, in world civilization. You know, there are a lot of things that that I, I think that that people that are in that situation that that are young that are frustrated with the economy that want to do better in the world can identify with in socialist literature and that I think that unfortunately that for many many young people uh, for many of the people in the Bernie movement socialism in a lot of ways articulates kind of a, a resentment you know mm-hmm. I know I, I like Alexandria Ocasio Cortez in a lot of ways I met her she's a nice woman you know she has very good intentions but when she says she wants to abolish abolish billionaires, right? What she's really playing at is a resentment. People are like, hey, I want to have a billion dollars. Somebody else has it. That's not fair. But you can't, you know, you can't build a movement on the basis of resentment. You know what I'm saying? And then a lot of, a lot of what left-wing circles do is they just kind of stoke resentment. This person has had a better chance in life than I've had. This person has some kind of privilege that I don't have. And they kind of get people to resent each other. And it's not, you know, the the broad masses of society resenting the fact that capitalism is keeping the society poor, but rather it's people in the working class resenting each other. Well, you've got male privilege. Yeah. Well, you've got white privilege. Yeah. Well, you've got cis privilege. You're not transgender. Yeah. Well, you've got straight privilege, you know, and, and, and everyone just kind of this circle of people resenting each other, boiling resentment, pointing fingers at each other. You've got it too good. No, you've got it too good. You should be worse <laughs> off. You should be worse off. And that that creates this negative energy that ultimately is nothing but destructive. And that I think that these young men, uh, they, they, they probably hear that and they think, well, I want to advance in the world. I don't think I have it too good. I want to advance. And so they, they turn away from socialism. But I think what they're looking for, they can find in a lot of different socialist literature and a lot of the socialism that has gone on in the 20th century and even in the Bolivarian countries of the 21st century, um, if they can look beyond the, the Western postmodernist uh, left and into the actual constructive socialist left, I think they can find what they're looking for. Cool. Well, that being said, Caleb, uh, thank you so much for this conversation. I'm going to try to send it to, uh, you know, a lot of uh, young men who really need to and and young people in general who need to hear this because it's so important uh, that we have the right information about how to build and and progress and uh, advance ourselves. I I long for the day that it it sounds kind of uh, utopian, but I long for the day that if we have a socialist uh, society that people can live up to like 200 years old, 300 years old, and and be strong and play uh, numerous instruments and 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 de- be fully developed as humans. So uh, I think that's what we're both uh, talking about here, and and I'm sure a lot of people out there would agree with us. It's just the method by which we want to get to that point 
you know, obviously differs. But thank you so much, Caleb. Um, and I hope to well, talk to you. It was a pleasure, soon. Ramiro. You're a great guy. Cool. All my best to you and everyone out there in California. All cool. my thank best. Thanks so much. Okay. Yep.